Jonathan just reminded me to hit record. So I'm going to briefly repeat <laughs> the introduction. So it's part of the, the recording. My apologies. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce this afternoon, Dr. Devin Stoff. He's 2005 graduate of Grove City College, where he's now professor of biology. He completed his PhD in microbiology and immunology in 2009 at Vanderbilt University. And he served as a postdoctoral fellow doing research at Princeton University from 2009 to 2011. He's an expert in immunology and infectious diseases and has published uh, groundbreaking research on a number of diseases, including anthrax and the bacteria which causes staph infections. He's been following the medical data and the research about COVID-19 and the different vaccines closely and is happy to answer our questions uh, today about COVID-19, the new vaccines, or even disease and vaccination in general. And as somebody who is an expert in the field, uh, I know and trust that Devin has the confidence to simply let us know uh, if he doesn't know the answer about anything. Uh, Sorry, if that's actually... the response to all your questions. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually the, the mark of a true expert, uh, that they know the limits of their actual knowledge. Um, so with uh, sometimes conflicting information coming from so many different sources, it can be difficult for us to evaluate all those sources. And so it's a privilege to have a trusted voice like Devon's uh, from our congregation here uh, today. So uh, Devin, I'm going to start with some general questions uh, about COVID. Um, and I'll ask various questions and feel free to expound uh, beyond the range of the question if there's, you know, uh, topics that you know are especially helpful and relevant for us to have in mind about uh, any of these issues. Um, first question I have just about COVID in general uh, is that there was a lot of conflicting information early on about COVID. Uh, and some of the early guidance from public health officials and elected officials has been uh, withdrawn or changed. So in light of that, uh, how can we trust the current recommendations about things like mask mandates, social distancing, schools or business closures or openings? Um, how do we evaluate those based on changes that were made over the course of um, the last few months? Yeah, the short answer is it's really hard. Uh, often we don't know the details of how everything has worked until decades after a pandemic has swept through uh, human civilization, if we ever end up figuring it all out. And so it's not too surprising that recommendations shift every few months. A lot of it is because the recommendations um, are based, should be based, on solid data and that data takes time to collect and so at the early points in the pandemic a lot of it was you know what have we done for previous pandemics what do we know works and then people study what actually does work and they stick with that as opposed to some of the things that are maybe not as effective or extremely costly uh, or just extraordinarily burdensome and so it's this learning process you know we it's amazing how much more we know right now than we did when the first report started coming out about a year ago. Um, I think that's probably part of it. That's really helpful. Um, one of the topics that has come up in terms of recommendations for how to approach uh, COVID was that some, some uh, folks argue that we need to just wait for herd immunity to be achieved. Um, is there uh, good arguments for or against 
uh, simply waiting for herd immunity or encouraging herd immunity? Wow, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so if you guys don't aren't familiar with herd immunity, basically the way that I think about it is how many people are immune and what's the likelihood of you coming into contact with someone that has the virus, right? So if, if the entire world is Grove City, which some people probably think is the case, you know, um, but if it is, and you know, I don't how many Matt, how many people are in Grove City? What's their population? Yeah, I don't actually, know. The, I should know these things. Yeah, I'll give you round numbers. These aren't exact numbers, but um, to, for your illustration purposes, say there's about eight thousand people in Grove City, and I was I saw recently that there's been about a thousand total cases, either confirmed or suspected. If that's helpful for illustrating. Wow, that's actually a lot more than I thought just in our local community. But if we think of, you know, think of 8,000 people, right? Um, and imagine that 7,990 have immunity to a virus. Well, then the chance of one infected person coming into contact with one uninfected person is really pretty low. But if you drop that immunity or increase that total case burden, the likelihood of that happening increases. And that's the idea of herd immunity. You want as many people immune as you can so that your total burden of infectious disease drops. Uh, when it comes to herd immunity, you know, I see papers out there that are you know, claiming herd immunity for COVID is unethical. Well, I don't know if that's the case or not, but it's something we don't really have control of uh, in terms specifically of whether we'll reach it or not. It might be something that naturally happens eventually, but I think that in short, we can do better than that. Um, the thing about herd immunity, right, if it requires 70% of people to be immune, um, if you, you can take, you know, you, we know the case fatality ratio. If you multiply that times 70% of the US population, you are talking about millions of fatalities. And so that's the cost of herd immunity. Um, and so I think that that's where vaccination comes in. Historically, vaccination prevents us from having to bear the phenomenal disease burden of natural herd immunity. Um, so in short, we might get herd immunity naturally. I really hope that a huge percentage of our herd immunity comes from vaccination just because of the number of deaths that are inevitably going to come from natural herd immunity. And people who have been following this might have heard of the Great Barentine Declaration. Is uh, that essentially an argument to simply follow herd immunity and try to protect the most vulnerable communities? Yeah, and that's another, uh, that's another approach that you can take. I'm, I'm no public health official. I, I'd, I'd have a hard time making recommendations. Um, but I guess one of the ideas is, right, it's basically informed by the fact that this virus has pretty low fatality for folks who are healthy and under a certain age. And so if you protect the most vulnerable, maybe you do let this thing go and get natural herd immunity. The problem with that is your total number of cases. If you have a huge case burden, it's going to be virtually impossible to keep the virus away from the most susceptible populations. Um, it's just, if you have enough cases, it's going to reach nursing homes and 
long-term care facilities and things like that, it just inevitably will. And so it's a complicated thing. Um, where we're at right now is just trying to restrict this movement as much as possible and wait for the expansion of vaccination. Um, how those timings work out, like the time of delivering all the vaccines and such, whether it contributes a substantial percent to herd immunity is something, you know, the jury's still out on that one. I don't know if that answers your question. No, yeah, I think that's a good question or, or a good answer. Um, and thanks, you know, thanks for acknowledging that there's the, the immunology component and then public health application mm -hmm. is a whole, a whole nother range uh, of reflection. Um, uh, I don't know if you'd have an answer for this, but there's been <clears throat> news stories about a so-called United Kingdom variant uh, that's supposed to be more infectious. Is there anything, uh, as that's in the news, is there any practical change on how we're living as individuals that the UK variant should uh, spur us towards? Yeah, good question. So uh, this is probably, it's still a little controversial in the scientific literature, whether this strain actually has a huge selective advantage. It probably does. It's probably more transmissible, but no more lethal. It's actually not surprising at all that this virus is doing this. Um, you have to think of it almost like what does the virus want? Well, the virus wants to find new people to spread on to more people from them. And so if it mutates to become more infectious, that isn't surprising. It actually surprises me that it took it this long to start doing this. Um, but I think that, I mean, it just, it reemphasizes the need to do the stuff that we do already that we know works. Uh, the stuff that we know works like masking and reasonable amounts of physical distancing um, doing what we can to get the, the vaccine out as quick as possible, especially to vulnerable people. All those are going to protect us against the new variant as well as the old one. Um, the problem is, though, when you have a new variant that spreads more quickly, um, your time frame is basically crunched down a little bit. Uh, your R factor that everyone talks about uh, could be altered by this new strain. Um, but I think that it's just, yeah, what we're doing now um, just becomes a bit more important, probably. Um, any specific, obviously during the summer, a lot of people were encouraging us to stay outdoors, fresh air. It's the winter, it's harder to do that. Um, any specific kind of winter season recommendations based on what we know right now? Um, yeah, good question, right? You can't be outside all the time. We can't do church outside in January. <laughs> uh, I could wear my, like, I have this big, uh, huge sleeping bag for winter camping. I could maybe bring that out. But I look a little weird, but um, I, I mean, I think just all the stuff that we already do, um, just maybe a bit more conscientiously, a lot of the transmission is still extended face-to-face -face contact with an infected person who's pre or post symptomatic. And so focusing on things like, um, you know, wearing your mask, avoiding large groups, since we do know that there are still, um, there's still a lot of super spreading or close to super spreading events out there. Um, you know, I, I think that, I think 
the hardest thing for us is just maintaining that because it's so exhausting and we've been doing this for so long. But I think it it will get us through the winter. I, I'm pretty sure of that. I don't have any magic new recommendations other than if you are offered the vaccine, think carefully about that. <laughs> uh, we'll get to some vaccine specific questions here shortly. Um, one thing though, I think of in Grove City, so schools are reopening for in-person instruction. If schools are opening, does that mean everything is fine? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think it just, uh, suppose uh, the Grove City School District, so I've actually been really impressed by how they look at the local data and make their decisions based on that balancing the needs for the kids' education and the fact that uh, under a certain age, um, kids, it does not appear are as major a source of new infections as a, like a symptomatic adult or something. So in a lot of ways, um, keeping the schools open while keeping a close eye on the local epidemiological situation makes sense to me. Um, but keep in mind that there's pressure from all sides on the school district to keep the doors open. Uh, <laughs> I know I felt some of that pressure. My kids were uh, online for several weeks and man, towards the end of it, when they went back to school, I just collapsed on the couch and was like, praise the Lord. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think they're doing a, a great job of keeping an eye on the data. Good. Uh, last question, this, this section uh, came up in the, the chatter before we get started. Uh, beards, are those a deterrent? Well, apparently not, because no. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so your mask doesn't work quite as well uh, with a beard on. Um, on the other hand, I don't really, I'm kind of reclusive these days. Plus I'm on sabbatical this coming semester, so I won't have as much face-to-face -face contact. Um, you know, a lot of it uh, is whether you're wearing an N95 respirator too, they don't work quite as well with a beard. The cloth masks, I would emphasize that it's critical to wear them out in public because they do have a protective factor, but their protective factor is not nearly what you'd get with an N95 mask. Unfortunately, those are a little hard to come by as we're trying to still reserve them for healthcare workers. But apparently the N95s really, they, they don't go, they don't work great with a beard because they don't get that seal around your face. So if you're like a healthcare worker, uh, yeah, definitely shave that beard off, but I'm not sure if any of the people in here are in that category right now. So. Now, you mentioned that masks are really helpful and a good deterrent. What if, I, what if I'm not worried about getting infected and I'd rather just get infected and get it over with? Can I just not wear my mask? <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. You could go to like the, the heavy metal concert and go in the mosh pit or something like that. Do people still do that? I don't know. Maybe that was a 90s thing. I don't know. But uh, yeah, if you want this virus, um, yeah, I, you might want to actually check your mental health expert first before you stop wearing your mask. <laughs> um, I'm not sure it's a great idea to <laughs> go out of your way to become infected. I think that, yeah, in short, the way I think about it is, uh, you know, if I were if I if I were guaranteed that I would have no complications, I'd just be sick as a dog for a week, and I'd have no complications. And most importantly, I would not pass this on to anyone else. Um, then I don't know. Maybe I'll go hang out in the woods for a week and battle this thing and get it done with. But I don't have control over most any of those factors, right? Uh, if I go out, you know, to the to the 
concert and pick this thing up and I think I'm fine and I pass it on to three or four people before my symptoms kick in, then that's a big problem. Also ethically, because I know that what I'm doing is dangerous to the other people around me. Kind of like I don't usually walk around, you know, with a stick of dynamite in my pocket because it could harm me or other people. Um, I think it's just critical at this stage to do what we know works, especially since um, the situation is much more hopeful right now in a lot of ways, other than case numbers, um, than it was a long time ago, six, nine months ago. So is it fair to say that wearing a face mask actually protects other people from me more than me from other people? Uh, yeah, so there's data along both uh, along both of those lines. It's both a protective, and the, the extent of the protective effect depends on the study that you're looking at. But in short, there is a protective effect both for myself, but probably an even more significant protective effect for other people. So if I pick this thing up from one of my research students this semester, and I wear my mask to go pick up some paint or something like that, then the total amount of virus that I'm spreading to the winds is probably reduced. And so it's really both effects. I think, you know, this is actually what I, when I get tired of the stupid mask and, and everything, um, I try to keep in mind that it's more a service for the other people around me than it is for me. I think yeah, that helps a little bit. And I think we're all in the boat where it's tiring and exhausting. Um, I know some of us wear glasses and, you're fogging up your glasses all the time, but uh, it is helpful to know that we're doing it uh, for other people as much or more than for ourselves. Actually, one question just came through specifically about masks before we move on. Um, do you have recommendations about reusing masks? Uh, obviously, we've been going on for months and months. Some masks are cloth masks, some masks are disposable masks, some are reusable, some are washable. Any basic? Yeah, basically, I think the recommendations are if you have a cloth mask, wash it every day. I wash mine by hand with detergent and just hang it up and dry it. Uh, if you have one of the disposable ones, I'm not sure it's a great idea to reuse the thing. I would toss it and get a new one. Um, if you have access to N95 respirators, I'm actually not sure what you're supposed to do with those. I don't think they recommend using them for more than a certain period of time because I think the moisture in our breath clogs up the filter or something like that. You'd have to check on the recommendations from the manufacturer. But just keep, always keep in mind too that these are not infallible protective measures. But if you start adding them together, if you start combining physical distancing with quarantines plus masking, then and uh, you know, then you start to really put some pressure on this virus. Um, in short, I guarantee that if we hadn't done some of the stuff that we did, like with masks and distancing, um, the the fatality burden would just be mind-boggling. I mean, it's already pretty pretty substantial, but importantly, it's not near where it could have been. And I think it's critical to keep it that way until we maybe uh, have a substantial number of us vaccinated, at least the most susceptible people. Let me move on to vaccinations then. Um, uh, lots of questions here, good questions. Um, first one, are there any people who would have 
pre-existing conditions or allergies that should avoid getting vaccination? Yeah, good question. Yeah, so um, there is a small but documented risk. I think it's mostly associated with the Pfizer mRNA-based vaccine of having a severe allergic reaction. Um, the number, the, the likelihood of that, I'm seeing reports, maybe it's one in 10,000, one in 100,000, something like that. So it's, it's unlikely. Um, it's much less likely than severe complications from the actual virus, which is good because that's why we vaccinate, right? Um, but uh, if you go to get the vaccine, they are probably going to ask you questions about whether you've had a serious allergic reaction to other vaccines. And they might recommend against not getting this one because of that. Um, on the other hand, um, if you've had it's not clear what that it's not clear what the biological basis of that allergic reaction even is. And so um, you know if you have seasonal allergies or something like that, I don't I've never I've not seen any evidence that that predisposes you to these reactions. In fact, no one really has a clue what's causing them. That makes sense because the vaccine's only been around for a little bit. Um, and I think then that becomes why it's important for the folks that don't have that risk factor to get the vaccine. Because if we think of like a good example is the measles vaccine, right? There's certain people who can't get that vaccine for a number of reasons or the flu shot. That's another good example. That's why it's so important that everyone else who doesn't have that risk factor gets it to protect those people who can't receive the vaccine. Um, and so they're going to ask you those questions if you go to get it. And um, yeah, it's, again, it's extremely rare, but um, it is documented. The other critical thing I'll mention about that allergic reaction is this. It is readily treatable. So you might think there's a lot of folks who are thinking, well, you know, coronavirus disease versus an allergic reaction. Yeah, I don't want the allergic reaction. Well, the thing to keep in mind is this. If you're one in those if you're one of those one in you know, 20,000 or 60,000 or whatever people that might get an allergic reaction, it's easily treatable. That's why they're gonna keep you for 15 minutes after your shot. I know this because I, a certain loved one of mine has received the coronavirus vaccine as a public school teacher. Um, they're gonna keep you 15 minutes to make sure you don't have that reaction. Um, again, if it happens, it's readily treatable. Uh, however, severe complications from the actual coronavirus infection are anything but readily treatable. There's no great, wonderful treatment, whereas anaphylaxis, there's phenomenal instantaneous treatments for that. So these are all important things to think about as we judge risk. Great. Um, this is a very uh, specific practical question. Um, Somebody's asking, should I take Tylenol before getting the vaccine or not? And actually that might go to a question from early in the COVID spread where I think there were some rumors that Tylenol or other over-the-counter medications might exacerbate reaction. Is there any, as, that's, as things have developed, is there data on that one way or the other? The short answer is I haven't seen any, any data pointing to correlations between increased risk of either disease or vaccine side effects from using any over-the-counter medications. 
that doesn't mean they're not there. I just haven't seen them or maybe they haven't been discovered yet. I don't think anyone would recommend taking Tylenol before the vaccine just to prevent a reaction. Tylenol is not gonna prevent any of the allergic reactions associated with this. Um, and again, keep in mind those alert reactions are extremely rare. Um, however, uh, uh, basically uh, my wife got the coronavirus vaccine. I don't know if I'm allowed to divulge your medical information. I'm sure she wouldn't care. Uh, and um, the thing I would mention is the coronavirus, and this is critical that people know this, the coronavirus vaccine has what we call high, here's a fun science word, it's high reactogenicity. What does that mean? That means it's not that fun. It means you feel sick. Uh, Amy's, Amy had like muscle pains and a, she didn't have fever, but she definitely had muscle aches and she just felt sick for 24 hours or so. Um, nothing real serious. She took Advil and it got a little better. This is not your typical flu virus vaccine where you don't even know you had it. This is a really, really reactogenic vaccine. So that's gonna steer a lot of people away from it, right? But it shouldn't, and here's why. Those symptoms that you get are going to be way, uh, way less unpleasant than even moderate COVID. Um, and also um, they're gonna go away quickly. They're not gonna last. And the other reason is actually, when I saw the first reports of a highly reactogenic vaccine, I was like, oh good. Why was I excited about that? Well, the reason is because that indicates that the vaccine works. <laughs> so it, it's actually an indication of the massive immune response that that vaccine triggers. And that's a good thing. Um, I wouldn't say that it, my wife enjoyed it, but I was sitting there being like, mm, I know what your B cells are doing. <laughs> they're taking that antigen and the vaccine and they're, they're going completely, as my daughter says, cuckoo bananas. And that's what you want. That's what a vaccine should do. Um, so all that to say, uh, you shouldn't be afraid of it just because you'll feel a little like you have a cold for 24 hours. Is that then connected in any way with uh, what's been reported about the effectiveness of the vaccine? And when, when we hear numbers about 80% effective, 95% effective, uh, it sounds like it's much, it goes up with the second dose. Um, what, what are we to make of those numbers? Yeah, the first thing we're to make, you know, when I saw the first, when I saw the very first results, I think it was Pfizer's clinical phase three data uh, was released first. And I saw 95% efficacy after the second dose. It was unreal to get that. So here's the thing to keep in mind, previous vaccines, like the ones you get when you're kids and stuff, those took decades to make. Um, and so we had a lot of naysayers. That's another interesting thing we could talk about, like rewind for a year and remember all the stuff the naysayers were saying, it was kind of embarrassing. But anyhow, um, uh, to get a 95% effective vaccine in a year is just, there's just no precedent for it. It's, it's just un, unreal. It's no one, even sign, even like immunologists, like the pros, like not me, they didn't see this one coming. They, they thought it may, might be 50%, but 95 is amazing. Um, and so anyhow, that's just me going on a rant about how just amazing this stuff was to me. I don't remember your question even, <laughs> sorry. 
No, so uh, there's, uh, I think it's reported about 80% efficacy if you do one dose, uh, 95 if you do two doses. Um, another piece of that might be, hey, if, uh, if I get the one dose, do I need to go back for the second dose? Um, you know, what are some of the practical implications of that? Yeah, yeah. And it's actually not surprising too much that it gets better with increasing doses. Um, the, the, the science of immunology is just the coolest thing. It's, it's actually what sent me into science originally. I was actually, uh, I think I was a high school junior or something when I first learned about the immune response. And then I, did, I actually did my high school senior project on immunology, um, which is kind of an embarrassing confession. But anyhow, um, uh, the immune system has just always been the coolest, absolute coolest thing for me about all of science. Uh, one of the cool things about it is that your immune system actually learns each time you get infected, learns to fight that virus or bacteria better. Um, it matures basically. And so the more times you get that dose, the better and better your body is getting at fighting it. Um, it learns and remembers. Um, and so, yeah, that second shot, you know, to go from 50 or so percent to 95%, it's almost as if the second shot's more important than the first. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and then the other thing, the other, actually to me, the most important thing out of the phase three trials was, um, I think it was the Pfizer vaccine had zero cases of severe illness in the vaccine cohort. So you can't say, it's, you can't say 100% protection because you don't have, you know, millions of participants in the clinical trial, but to have no cases of severe disease in the vaccine group was on absolutely unreal, um, just amazing stuff. And so that's, I think, a great reason to get two doses and go through that um, that 24 hours of not feeling great twice. Um, not only, again, critically, not only to protect you, but to protect everyone else who you're not passing the virus on to if you're vaccinated. So that makes me uh, think one question that comes up is then if I've had COVID already, should I get the vaccine? That's a really good question. Uh, I'm not sure what the CDC recommendations are for that. We'd have to check. Um, in fact, I have a former student that uh, is actually now a resident down in UPMC hospitals in Pittsburgh and she and I were chatting and we're, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, former student of mine, do you know whether if you get this virus, you're supposed to still get the vaccine? And she texts back, and she's like, I don't really know. <laughs> so uh, in short, I think it's probably less important uh, if you do, but it can't hurt. Um, one of the things about this virus is, unfortunately for coronaviruses, your antibodies tend to go away pretty quickly. And these vaccines are entirely almost focused on antibody production. Um, so, but from a public health standpoint, I think it makes way more sense to vaccinate people who are totally not exposed to it first. But we'll have to see what the CDC says across the weeks is um, about people who have definitely been diagnosed. We do now, there are just reports out recently that we do get robust, what appears to be lasting immunity to natural infection. It's too early to say about the vaccine because people have only been vaccinated for a few months. Okay. Um, 
So you mentioned that uh, people that had the vaccine in the study had zero cases of severe um, reaction or, or severe cases of COVID. Um, but how about um, spreading uh, COVID? Uh, does, do we know if the vaccine prevents that or not? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't think in the clinical trial that they did like nasal swabs every week for all the participants. I'm pretty sure it was just a monitoring for clinical disease. So the short answer is we don't know whether it prevents my, like if I'm vaccinated, second dose, can I still get this thing and pass it on to other people? Um, the short answer is we don't know, but I, I, I almost guarantee that it's way, way less likely um, based on analogy with all the other vaccines that prevent communicable diseases. I mean, most of them, you know, the effect is twofold. Do I get sick? And second, do I get, get this thing and pass it on to other people? And many of our vaccines do both. Um, I, I'd, I'd bet, well, I'm not supposed to bet because we're in Presbyterian circles and stuff, but if I had to, I'd put my money on having that second effect uh, as well and probably a pretty strong one. So does that mean if I get vaccinated, I don't have to mask or social distance anymore? <laughs> I don't, I, you know, um, I, I just don't know what they're recommending. You'll probably still have to. I don't know if they're gonna have like badges that they give us or something like, I've been vaccinated, ha ha, take that. Now I don't have to wear my mask. Um, but I think probably, probably for the time being, we'll all just be wearing our masks even if we haven't, just because especially since right now, the percentage of people who've been vaccinated it's just so low, um, but it'll be interesting to see how that changes. Uh, I haven't even seen people talk about that recently. Maybe, maybe come April or May. Okay. Um, looking through questions, we've covered a lot of ground. Actually, we did um, receive a couple of questions related to vaccines in general. Um, over the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, there's been um, sort of a rising tide of at least coverage of people who have skepticism about vaccines or concerns about uh, negative side effects of vaccines. Do, do you have any kind of comments about that trend in general or how, what, you, what should be our perspective on vaccines in general? Yeah. Yeah, this is a really big thing, and I think it's it's something that a lot of people are are thinking about and should be thinking about. I don't think it's wise to just, you know, nod our heads and act like sheep. On the other hand, um, sometimes sheep are given things that are good for them uh, by the shepherd. So anyhow, um, uh, I would not call it a CDC or shepherd necessarily. However, uh, anyway, back to vaccines. Um, yeah, so I think part of it, my perspective is that part of it is this. Part of it is that vaccines are so incredibly successful that they eliminate the diseases basically that we vaccinate against. And then a few generations later, we forget how deadly those diseases were and we start to question the need for vaccination without realizing again, the reason why we're not living in constant fear of diphtheria and measles and tetanus and stuff is because entirely because of vaccination. Um, 
So I think that's part of the reason that it crops up. And also there's this kind of paradoxical, kind of strange, like low risk tolerance without realizing how risky it would be to get some of these diseases that we vaccinate against. And so you, you know, you have folks that uh, point to very low likelihood severe reactions or even unproven correlations between vaccines and injury and things like that. Whereas they, they will tend to not focus on the known protective effect that vaccines actually have against infectious diseases. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think that's where we're at. It's just, a, it's just I feel like we almost need to go back. If we could take a time machine and travel back to 1920, we would see children being paralyzed all the time by polio. Uh, we'd see uh, teenagers and kids dropping, dropping left and right from diphtheria. We'd see people dying of tetanus, which I cannot think of a worse way to die than tetanus. Um, and so all of this is why there was a massive effort in the 20s, 30s, 40s to vaccinate. It's just really easy to forget um, all of that history. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of my perspective on it. No, that's really helpful. It seems to summarize that it's safe to say that there might be some side effects, sometimes severe to vaccines, but that um, the overall impact of eliminating or vastly eliminating the diseases is overwhelmingly uh, better. Yeah, I think that is definitely safe to say. One of the things I, I think everyone should think of as they think about anything medical um, is, is always like benefit versus risk, right? There's no, there's no drug out there that has zero risks, right? If you look at the side of the Advil bottle, right, you're gonna be horrified. And yet I still take Advil like whenever I go hiking because I can't hike without Advil. My legs like don't work without it. Um, so vaccines are the same way. There's a advantage to taking them and then there's risk. It just so happens though that if you, if you look at that risk to benefit margin, vaccines are our um, elite. They have, there are very few other drugs that even approach the efficacy, um, efficacy and safety ratio of vaccines. Uh, even some of your common over-the-counter drugs have, are in, in a lot of ways more dangerous compared to the risk or the benefit that you get um, than vaccines. Um, so yes, there are people who have severe reactions, but they're tend, they tend to be very, very rare. And the diseases that we vaccinate against tend to be pretty brutal. And uh, that's kind of how I think we should think about them. Excellent. Well, I'm going to open up here in just a second uh, if folks that are on the call have additional questions. Um, while folks are processing that or unmuting themselves or what have you, um, I just wanted to mention a couple of resources. Actually, I have uh, some of them handy. Um, the one book that I've read uh, recently is Apollo's Arrow by Nicholas Christakis, um, who is a, a professor uh, at Yale University. And I think they have a medical school that he's affiliated with as well. Um, that gives a perspective on the recent history with coronavirus, as well as how that kind of situates in uh, with historical pandemics. Um, 
There's also a series of YouTube videos that my alma mater, Westminster Theological Seminary, has produced. They're called Crisis, Christ, and Confidence. And it just so happens that there was a student who had just enrolled at Westminster Seminary, uh, Dr. Gregory Poland, who is at the Mayo Clinic. I think he's uh, the editor-in-chief of a, a magazine called Virus, which is not about making or spreading viruses, but fire, uh, fighting against them. Uh, and he's also a theology student right now. And uh, there, I believe he's probably gonna be contributing to some publishing in the realm of sort of theology and Christian application. Uh, but he, this past year, has actually been working, for those of you that remember Ian, our uh, church planter, Ian has been supervising an independent study that he has been doing, Dr. Poland, uh, while at Westminster. And then Westminster Seminary Press uh, will be publishing uh, a book called Faith in a Time of Plague with a variety of historical selections because um, plague or epidemics is something that the Christian church has dealt with many, many times over the course of her history. But again, that history is spread out over thousands of years. And so uh, sometimes we have to go back uh, a hundred, couple hundred, a uh, few, uh, or even thousand years or more. Uh, but there's a lot of um, theological reflection the church has done over the, the centuries. Uh, they probably were pretty pleased that they were gonna get that out in March of this year. Um, and thought, thought that the book would uh, still be in the midst of uh, a lot of uh, uh, ongoing uh, COVID spread uh, in God's mercy. Uh, we've, the vaccines are coming out uh, faster than the book will come, but that, that might still be a helpful and interesting book for folks. Uh, look for that in March. Uh, are there any questions that folks who are on the call would like to add in here at the last little bit? I don't see anybody unmuted. so. If you have a question, don't forget to unmute yourself first. I don't know if we're allowed to ask practical questions, but um, your wife. I'm a, a Rebecca, I'm a professor. I don't have anything practical to say. Well, no, but just <laughs> it's all I'm, theoretical. I'm intrigued because, right, so Amy's a public school teacher. You and I are professors. Have you gotten the vaccine? Are you able to? How can we also get them? Yeah, um, good question. I definitely would. You know, maybe I can go and uh, and pretend I'm a public school teacher. No, that's terrible. That's well, but all. that's just it. That's like evil. we shouldn't have to pretend that we're public school teachers, right? Like we should be covered under the same umbrella, shouldn't we? Yeah, you know, and, and Pennsylvania has these phases one A, one B, etc. Those are actually pretty controversial. Uh, there are other countries that have decided to vaccinate the most vulnerable population first before they vaccinate um, like a healthy um, public school teacher or something like that. Yeah. So it's, it's controversial, controversial when you have a limited supply. I think the idea though is like colleges, hey, you know, you guys can go online if you want. We can take exception to that idea. <laughs> but I think that's just, that's why, you know, we're okay. in one of the latter the latter cohorts for that. Um, okay. Although I thought, are we not in 1B? I thought we were in 1B. I don't even know, honestly. Oh, okay. I, I well, should know. <laughs> that's okay. I don't have to. That's Some of the language is kind of confusing to me too for the different cohorts and stuff. But um, yeah, I do know that they're, they're trying to ramp it up. Um, Pennsylvania has been supposedly doing pretty well with it. Total so numbers. I, 
sorry, can I ask another practical question? So Amy gets, so Amy gets the shot or so you get the first dose of vaccine. Um, do you then have to quarantine immediately? Like how soon is it effective? Are you contagious while you're fighting off the vaccine? Like how does that work? Super good question. And I'm really glad you mentioned that one. So yeah, there's 0% chance basically that this vaccine can give you the uh, infection. Okay. Uh, there are some historical vaccines where believe it or not, if you've got the vaccine, you could actually get the real thing from the vaccine. We don't give any of those anymore in the United States to my knowledge. Uh, let me rack my brain. Da, 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 da. Yeah, I think the last one they took off the shelves in the 90s or something. Okay. Um, but this one, this one is, yeah, there's just no likelihood. I mean, you could get the coronavirus from going to, you know, CVS or whatever to get it and, you know, bumping into someone there, but you're not going to get it from the actual vaccine. So yeah, there's no quarantine. You'll still wear your mm -hmm. mask and all that stuff. Okay. Just to be safe. Right. Okay. And so like, you don't have to quarantine between dose one and dose two or anything like that. No, it's business as usual, wear your mask, you know, do all of the, all the stuff that we know works. And again, I haven't seen anyone suggest that people who have their second dose, you know, a week after their second dose can go out there and, you know, not throw Super out their spreading. mask and stuff. Yeah. I, I, I think it's going to take, you know, once, once people, once enough data comes through and people say, you know, if you've had your second dose, you basically can't be infected and spread it. If that were to happen, then I think that you'd see people talking about that stuff. But mm -hmm. since you cannot get the virus from the, these vaccines, um, it's kind of, yeah, you don't have to quarantine after the vaccine. Okay, thanks. This might be a question that's more related to sort of public health policy, but is it possible that our public health officials would encourage us uh, to continue practices like masking after we've been vaccinated uh, simply to maintain that social norm? Because it's not like we have a badge that says I've been vaccinated. Um, yeah, I, I could actually see good reasons to have the badge so that enough people see uh, enough people out there with the badge and they're like, hey, I'm going to get this too. There's people who are still walking around after it. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's probably a big part of it, right? If everyone stops wearing their mask. Uh, I went to a certain store um, way outside of Grove City, but uh, maybe even outside of our county. I will not name that store. But as I was shopping through the store, there was not a soul with a mask on. Oh. And um, I actually felt like, oh, sh I feel really weird. Should I take my mask off? And then I remembered, no, just because everyone else is like, not on board doesn't mean I benefit in any way or they benefit in any way from me also not being on board. So, but it is, I felt that social pressure. So maybe, maybe that's an important thing, right? To encourage people to do what we know works until enough people are vaccinated. I don't know if anybody in the, our congregation would have a question of me and my masking practice. I've tried to be, I've tried to mask probably more frequently than I need to, just to try to contribute to normalizing that behavior. So if I'm asking and you're not, I'm not trying to judge you. Uh, I'm just trying to encourage us all. Did uh, one of the Kachembas have a question? Did I see you guys on mute? Yeah, I had a question. Um, we, are, we are talking about like 
how the how the vaccine protects. And my question is, since the idea is that it's creating these antibodies, at what point after you've received the second dose are you at that ninety percent efficacy? Yeah, it's. Uh, I haven't seen the actual data. I haven't seen them like do serology. You know, 24, 48, 72 hours. But generally, with your average vaccine, it's going to be a few days to a week after your second dose that your antibody titers uh, peak, and then they're gradually going to deteriorate over a period of time. And so that begs the question: Is how long is the vaccine actually going to protect you? Is it going to be six months or a year or three months? And the answer to that is no one has any idea um, just because it's been around, hasn't been around that long. Those are things we'll learn across the next few um, months. But yeah, um, yeah, in general, to answer your question, it's going to be a short period of time after your second dose that you get those real high antibody titers. Can I ask a follow up then? As it's diminishing, presumably there would be a point at which I don't have enough antibodies where I could get a low case of COVID and not quite as high as it would normally be. That and that's the, that's another thing, you know, people don't know like, okay, so let's say you go six months out, your antibody titers drop down low enough that you actually can get infected. Well, the things that are not known include the first, which is, is your disease much less serious than it would have been if you hadn't been vaccinated? Or maybe you can get sick, but you can't transmit it as much as you could if you hadn't been vaccinated. So these are just, we don't know the answer to those just because you haven't had enough people vaccinated for long enough to answer those questions. Um, but there is absolutely precedent out there for a vaccine um, giving you partial protection. The flu vaccine is a great example of this. It, you can, as most of us know, you can still get the flu if you had the vaccine, but we also know that disease tends to be more mild and we tend to not infect as many people if we have had the vaccine. So immune, I think it was Jonathan that talked about, um, you know, a lot of things in the physical world, it's not all one or all the other. There's a spectrum in between, whereas uh, not in other uh, realms as much, but in the realm of immunology, it's a spectrum. Immunity is anywhere from, I have zero immunity, we call that the immunologically naive state, all the way to complete sterilizing immunity and everything in between. Uh, if I had to guess, you know, maybe two years after your vaccine, maybe you can still get the infection, but it's less severe, but we don't know. The, I have one last question, which somebody uh, flagged the issue to me this past week. I hadn't previously heard about it. Uh, and it's more in the ethical uh, domain. So uh, if you want to punt because it's an ethical question, that's totally fine. Uh, they raised the question, there's been lots of different research programs and uh, apparently it's possible that some of those vaccine development programs would use or rely on um, fetal tissue or stem cell research. Uh, do you, are you familiar with that at all and the likelihood of that being relevant to any of the vaccines available in the US? Yeah, super good question. I, I have these chats with my students. Uh, yeah, so the, two, um, the two, two ones that are approved, FDA approved through the emergency use authorization, that's the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. They're both mRNA-based vaccines and they, they never see a cell. Um, they're manufactured entirely in the laboratory, as far as I know, based on how other 
uh, lipid nanoparticles are manufactured. So to me, there's no real, like, that's not an ethical problem with the two current ones. Um, however, uh, the ones that are kind of catching up and might be approved shortly, the adenovirus vectored ones, it's important to realize that those um, vaccines are grown on cell, a cell line that was produced from fetal tissue back in, I think, the 1960s or 70s. Um, so, you know, different people have different opinions about that. Uh, I think a lot of Christians won't want to touch that vaccine because of the fact that it's produced on those cell lines. Um, other folks will say things like this, right? Well, it wasn't right how they generated that cell line, but it is a cell line. It is not like fetal tissue that they're harvesting to make the vaccine. It's a single cell that was derived uh, from that unborn child and was genetically engineered to support the replication of the adenovirus that they used to vector that, um, that vaccine. I think this is the Oxford vaccine um, that you're gonna see in the news shortly. Um, so yeah, in short, there's not like, fetal tissue that's ongoing and being fed into these reactors. You're not creating a demand for it or anything like that. However, I think there are a lot of Christians that would have ethical problems with how that cell line was constructed in the first place and might decide to go with the other vaccine. Um, the beautiful thing about it is it's not just one vaccine option that's out there, it's several. And so uh, from my perspective, I see zero ethical problems with the mRNA-based vaccines but possible problems with some of the uh, adenovirus ones. The, the same person that alerted me to that issue also shared um, a, a communication from the Vatican. And we have, um, as Protestants, we would have lots of differences with the Roman Catholic Church, although we also have lots of things we share in common. And uh, the Roman Catholic Church obviously has a, a very uh, well-deserved uh, reputation as being vigilant on issues related to um, life and respect for life. And it, uh, so they apparently have had a statement that um, indicated that the life-saving benefits of vaccines that may have been uh, in some way researched with the stem cell and the fetal tissue lines that, had, that were started decades ago uh, is sufficiently remote that they would they are encouraging people um, to get vaccinated anyways so that you're protecting the actual lives of people around you from getting infected. So it was quite interesting that um, you know there's and you may or may not agree with the ethical reasoning that the Roman Catholic theologians are using, but it was quite striking that even um, there was that communication from the Vatican. Yeah, the, the Roman Catholic Church, I've been really impressed with how thoughtful they've been about vaccination and these very issues. Um, and it is a real, I, in full honesty, I don't know what to make of it. Um, if you have a life-saving vaccine that uses these cell lines, I, I just don't know what to make of all of that. But um, in this case, if it is a concern, we have other candidates in our country, at least, that you can turn to. Um, however, some of those mRNA vaccines might never uh, make sense for other, especially they're, they're expensive, the mRNA-based ones, which I think is why a lot of people are putting their hope in some of the other technologies and, you know, people in developing countries 
where the adenoviral vaccine might be cheaper, um, might be forced into some of those ethical dilemmas. And that's this is also a topic where the guidance that Paul gives us in Romans 14 about uh, our individual conscience as believers is also relevant. And as different believers, we may come to different conclusions on, on certain ethical topics and showing respect for one another uh, as we seek to all be faithful. Great. I want to be conscientious of the hour. And Deva, I really appreciate uh, that you set the time aside and um, also, uh, I don't know that everybody knows, but uh, I've been liberally uh, chatting with uh, Devin as we've tried to navigate and be wise um, for our congregation uh, as we try to make policies moving forward. So, I'm, so this is uh, only one piece of uh, the way that he's serving our congregation with his uh, specialty. I see one last question that popped up there. Um, is there a difference between uh, the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines if you have a choice between the two? Was that, was that the essence of your question, Bill? Uh, yeah, so um, the, the data, so both the technology and the uh, clinical trial data for the Moderna versus the Pfizer mRNA-based vaccine, they're pretty similar. Uh, there are slight differences in how the, uh, the, basically the viral genes that are encoded in the mRNAs for the two, but the, it's unclear whether that's going to be substantial in terms of the things we care about, like does it protect us. Um, they appear really similar and pretty much interchangeable. Um, so, you know, if you're offered the Pfizer one, don't be like, no, I'm holding out for the Moderna one. I, I, that, that, that to me is kind of crazy, unless maybe you invested in Moderna or something like that. But uh, I think they're, um, yeah, they, they certainly, it's actually amazing. One of the things that really, to me, um, is powerful evidence that they probably work really well is the fact that you have two, you haven't done the experiment just once. It's been done in replicate uh, with two totally different companies using the same technology and your data at the end of the day are pretty much, pretty much identical. And so that to me is a real powerful evidence that the ones that are out there now work. When are we all gonna get it? Who knows, maybe May, June or something like that, but I'll definitely be at the front of the line, so. Excellent. I'm gonna close us in prayer for this portion. I'll stop the recording after I do that. Uh, and then Devin, you should feel free. We appreciate your time. If you need to log off, that's great. Uh, if you're available uh, to field any questions once we stop the recording, uh, people might feel more free to speak freely uh, in that situation. So. Uh, if you're up for doing that for a minute more, uh, great. But let me close us in prayer here first. Uh, our Lord and our God, we do thank and praise you for the wonder of your creation and that there are so many resources uh, that you have uh, given us in this world uh, for us to cultivate uh, and to enrich our own and the lives of those around us. I thank you for those who, like uh, Devin, have the, the wonder and the uh, curiosity to study your world and uh, through whom we have all benefited from such a vastly improved uh, standard of living. We do at the same time pray that as this uh, sickness has uh, permeated our society, that we would be humbled. Uh, we would be reminded that we are ultimately dust. We are your creation and we depend upon you to sustain us and preserve us. And we thank and praise you that uh, we look forward to a hope of a new heavens and new earth where uh, we will either be virus-free or viruses will do whatever good original thing you created them to do and do only that. 
we thank and praise you for the hope that we have of resurrection and new creation in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.